Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We are beginning our faith focus uh, this morning. For those of you that are a little new to URC, we've done this the past few years. Let me just briefly explain what we're doing is each fall our staff gets away on our staff retreat. And while we are on our staff retreat, we think through what are some of the areas of weakness within our church. Every church has weaknesses, we have weaknesses. Uh, and as we pray and we brainstorm through that, we come up with three weaknesses, things that we feel like, ah, we wish our church could grow in this, that it would be more and more in our DNA, in kind of the culture of our church, in the mindset of our church and be the heartbeat of our church. And those three things then go to our session, to our elders, who then on their retreat pray and think about it. And they can grab one of those three or they can grab another one. Uh, they have the authority to do so, but they have grabbed one of these three over the past number of years. And what we then do is in January, just the month of January, it allows us to drill down on that subject we preach through it morning, evening, we work through it in our growth groups, our ministry areas are all working it through their areas, and it just allows us to breathe and think and meditate upon and consider this one thing together as a church before we go back to what I think is healthier in the long run, Lectio Continua preaching, where we're just preaching continuously through a book of the Bible. But This allows us to drill down a little bit. What was decided for this year by our elders is that we would do, as our faith focus here in January of this year, living in light of eternity. Living in light of eternity. And what I'm going to do this morning is set the foundation. We're going to take different aspects of this, but this is the foundation this morning. This allows us then to build upon it. So living in light of eternity, a pilgrim's outlook. In the weeks to come, and even tonight, as Dave Hinckley preaches, we will look at very practical, very specific ways that a pilgrim is to live in light of eternity in our friendships, in our thinking, in our stewarding, in our use of time, in our perseverance, etc. But this is the foundation, is our outlook, living in light of eternity, a pilgrim's outlook. I want to do that this morning from the text in three ways, just following the text. First, a Christian acknowledges that they are a pilgrim. That's verses 13 and 14. 
Second, that we seek a better homeland. That's verses 15 and 16a. And then lastly, that we receive what is promised, 16b. So a Christian acknowledges they are a pilgrim, 13, 14, seeks a better homeland, 15 and 16a, and then receives what is promised, 16b. Let's start here, if we can. We're all pilgrims. Every man, woman, child that has been born into this world, every single one of you that is sitting in this room, every single person that is live streaming right now, we are all pilgrims. You say, oh no, Jason, this sounds a little scary. Are you going to tell us that we all need to wear these big black hats with belt buckles in the middle and long black dresses? No, That's often what we think, chasing turkeys, wearing black and white. That's our idea of pilgrims. But that's not historically the idea of pilgrim. Pilgrim is an old word. It's a word that's been used through the centuries. And it's used throughout the Scriptures. It's a good old word. Peter writes about the person of faith being an alien, an exile, a pilgrim. Paul will talk about our citizenship being in heaven. That is, that we are on a pilgrimage here on earth. The writer of Hebrews here, as he's using this language, he's bringing forth this idea that we are pilgrims. The world seems so very permanent to us. We often think that way. We often live that way in this world as if everything that we're participating in is very permanent, that this is the way that it will always be. But what the Scriptures keep telling you and I over and over is that we're all pilgrims. This is not it. We're all pilgrims. It's just some people are blind to the fact that they're pilgrims. But Christians aren't. We aren't. Look at verse 13. The writer begins with this. He says, these all, these all, these all has in view those that he's been talking about so far just previous to this and in the verses right before verse 13. He's been talking about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, these all, these great patriarchs and these matriarchs of the people of God, he says, they all died in the faith. Now, how is it that they died in the faith? Well, the answer is is that they died in the faith because they lived in the faith. You don't die in the faith unless you live in the faith. And he's saying that all of these patriarchs and all of these matriarchs, that they lived in the faith. And so when they came to that dying breath, they died in the faith. You remember this is that great... Chapter in Scripture, Hebrews 11, what we often call the Hall of Fame of Faith, he is just laying out person after person and what it looks like that the Old Testament saints lived in faith, that they looked with their eyes to heaven, that they kept God always before them. He gives example after example, and he defines faith as this in verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That is, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob were people of faith. They lived in faith and they died in faith. They had the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. 
And then he says this in our verse, verse 13, they did not receive what they were promised. They didn't receive it. With their final breath, he says that they continued to live, and then with that final breath, they died in faith. Not receiving what was yet promised to them. Now what in the world is he referring to? Why the need for continued faith even in their dying breath? Didn't they receive what was promised? They were promised by this covenant-keeping God that He would give them a promised land. Didn't Abraham and Isaac and Jacob receive that promised land? Yes. Didn't He promise that He would give them a child, that He would open the womb, and that He would give them descendants. Well, yes, he opened the womb of Sarah. He gave her the promise. He gave to Abraham and Sarah Isaac. And he gave to Isaac Jacob. And he gave to Jacob a whole gaggle of children. He promised that he would give them a line of blessing that coming from them would be descendants, a descendant that would bless all of the nations. Did they not have that line come to fruition? They did, and, and yet he says here that they all died still needing faith because they did not receive the thing that was promised to them. What in the world could he mean? Well, it can't be these earthly blessings. What they were looking forward to in faith, as one Old Testament commentator said, was beyond death. And beyond the present world, the promise they were holding out for was the promise of the world to come. And this gets at the reason why. Because they knew, the writer of Hebrews says, they knew that they were, quote, strangers and exiles on the earth. Or as some of your Bible translations will say, they were aliens and they were pilgrims. And did you catch the word that he used there? He puts in quotations there. We would put in quotations. He says that they acknowledged this. They understood this. They comprehended this. I like that old English word. They reckoned with this. That they're pilgrims. That they were aliens and strangers in this world. They knew this. So the great promises they longed for in faith, they were never meant to find here, and they acknowledged that. Listen, back to the beginning, I want to be very clear. Every single one of us is a pilgrim. Every one of us. Every single one of us knows this in our heart of hearts, because you know this because you die. And so you know that, you know what, this isn't all. I go somewhere. Maybe it's just to the grave. Maybe it's just to decompose. Or maybe it's something else. But we're all pilgrims. Everyone is only sojourning in this world. We all have a final, everlasting, eternal destination. And this world in its current form is not 
it. And the Christian, the person of faith, acknowledges that. We know that. That is our outlook, and that outlook begins to shape everything. Everything now begins to line up with that. Everything is informed by that and conformed to that. That I'm a pilgrim. Abraham and Jacob knew themselves to be pilgrims. Abraham will say in Genesis 23-4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner, a pilgrim among you. Jacob, when he speaks to Pharaoh, and he's speaking to Pharaoh in Genesis 47, he says his entire life has simply been, quote, a sojourning. He says of the life of his fathers that have come before him, all those men of faith, he says of them, all of those that preceded him, he says they simply were living a life of, quote, sojourning, We are not home. You're not there. And the Christian knows this. Carl Truman once said this. He said, it should be the Christian's natural state to feel that the times are out of joint and that we do not truly belong here. I think many of us, if we were writing a sentence like that, we probably would have written it differently than Dr. Truman did. I think most of us think along these lines, if we were rewriting the sentence, it would be this. It should be that the Christian at times feels like the world is out of joint and they don't feel like they truly belong here. But that's not what he wrote. That's not what he said. No, he rightfully said it should be the Christian's natural state to feel that the times are out of joint and that we do not belong here. It's our natural state. This world is opposed to our God, it is fallen. Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, quote, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Is that your outlook? Because it's the Christian outlook. Over the past few years, there's been increasing anxiety in Christians uh, in our culture about what feels like a changing culture. I think we could all say with very little hesitation that it feels like our culture has become more hostile to the Christian faith, generally more hostile to the church, specifically more hostile to Christians. You see, it only feels that way The world is always, to use Carl Truman's words, always out of joint. It's just sometimes you and I experience it more. It's just sometimes that we feel it more. But the world is fallen and it's opposed to our God. That's just reality. And maybe, just maybe, Part of what God is doing in our day and age is waking up a lukewarm church 
to the fact that this is not home. We've gotten too comfortable. This isn't home. You're a pilgrim. Second, pilgrims not only acknowledge this is not home, they seek a different home. That's verses 14 through 16. They are seeking a homeland, verse 14. They desire a better country, verse 16. Every Christian knows they are not home, but they equally are to know that their home is somewhere else. That's why this pilgrim language is so incredibly helpful. We're not homeless. We're not vagabonds. We're not aimlessly wandering around. We are pilgrims traveling from one place to another place. That's our outlook in the world. We're going from here to there. In Thanksgiving break week, uh, I was home, Springfield, Illinois, home with uh, extended family and We'd finished our Thanksgiving meal, and then like many of you, we get around a table and we start playing games, and the game that we were playing after Thanksgiving uh, dinner was a game where there's a question that's put out in the middle of the table, and that question is assigned to one of the people at the table, and then everybody else has got to answer that question for that person, and you've got to guess whose question, whose answer is most right, fitting for that person. So it was my turn, and the question was, what job would be his dream job? And everyone at the table took their little piece of paper and wrote on the little piece of paper and folded it up and put it in the middle. And uh, Now, don't misunderstand me. I love being your pastor. Uh, don't want to be anywhere else. Don't want to do anything else. Uh, but my wife knows me, and uh, she wrote what was obviously the right answer, she wrote on a little piece of paper, she wrote, an international traveling food critic. Uh, of course. <laughs> I mean, who, who doesn't want to travel through the world and eat your way through the world? Uh, if this is all that there was, if there wasn't a destination, if it was just about the journey, that's what I would want to do. But it's not. You know, our society has even coined this phrase now uh, because it really has nothing to live for. And so it will say it's all about the journey. Well, no, it's not. And yes, the journey matters. But it's about the end. It's about the destination. When you don't have a destination in view, you become tempted to lie down. You become tempted to rest here like a Christian does in Pilgrim's Progress. The sorrows and the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings of this life, they're all meant to wear you down so that you just kind of settle here. You just get low and you descend here. Don't. Don't. 
But it isn't just the lows, it's also the highs, those highs that we experience in this world. Like Peter, we experience all kinds of good things. And like him on that Mount of Transfiguration, he thinks he's arrived. He thinks this is as good as it gets. Let's just pitch tents and let's just stay here forever. No. We're pilgrims through this world. We don't get too low with things that happen. And we don't get too high with things that happen. Not in this world. Because we have a right outlook. We're pilgrims. We're going from here to there. And we are to enjoy great earthly friends. We're to enjoy a pleasant family. We're to enjoy a blessed career. We're to enjoy a wonderful home. God gave us taste buds. He gave us imaginations. He gave us sunsets. He gave us art for a reason, symphony music for a reason. But all the good things that you and I know that we experience in this life, we are not to set our hearts upon. When things are going well, we don't soar too high. When things are not going well, we don't descend too low because we acknowledge that we're pilgrims and we are on our way home. This ain't it. Does that make us of no earthly good? No. Those with hearts set on heaven are of the greatest earthly good. Because thinking on heaven is the best way to shape life on earth to where it's actually meaningful. I was thinking this morning on the drive-in, some of you are struggling with purpose. Some of you lack purpose in this life. You lack purpose today. And you know why you lack purpose today? It's because you don't believe there's an everlasting tomorrow. That's why. When you know and believe there is an everlasting tomorrow, then today actually matters. We're headed to the celestial city, but all of this world is not just a flyover world for us. No, everything in it matters to us. Our days matter, our hours matter, our minutes matter, our seconds matter. It shapes our living, it shapes our families. We live in light of eternity. That's why we have the household passages in Ephesians and Colossians. It's because it shapes our families. It shapes our living in the church. That's why so much time is spent on the Scriptures on, in loving and living and loving relationships with one another. That's why we are told to love our neighbors because it shapes our living in the midst of our world. That's why we are told to use our time because it shapes our living in the midst of our days and our routines. When you have eternity in your mind, when that is out your outlook, it shapes everything. We don't extricate, extricate ourselves from the world, but we also don't get too invested in the things of the world. Where we get invested, we get invested for the sake of eternity. And that changes everything. 
This is something the secular world has no answer for. Why does today matter? Why does it matter what you do today? Why not, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, why not just eat and drink and be merry? You see, the secular world has no answer to that. Because as it's distanced God from the conversation, because there is no God in their mind, there's no origin. We have no origin. And because we have no origin, we have no destiny. And when you have no origin and you have no destiny, then the middle doesn't matter either. It just becomes a kind of nihilism. It's meaningless. But when you know your origin, that you were created as an image of God for the glory of God, and you know that your destiny is eternal, dwelling with that God, then everything in between now matters. Because you want to do everything in between for His glory and for your eternal benefit. Everything matters. Who are heavenly minded are actually of the most earthly good. I love what the writer of Hebrews says about those with such a mindset. He says they, quote, desire a better country. He said that they, they seek it. I like that too. Seek it, though, can be cognitive. It can be a just a a matter of the will where we engage that will but he he takes it to a new level when he says that they desire it it's not just something that we will ourselves towards it's not just something that we know about and we say look eternity exists there's a celestial city that i'm headed to no he says that those who are people of faith those that look to the lord jesus christ they actually desire it it becomes their longing Long to be there. That's the outlook. I want to be there. And why do you want to be there? Because Christ is there. I had a fellow pastor ask me this week. He, uh, we were on the phone together and he said... Uh, He's trying to figure out things with some of his people. And he said, Jason, he said, what, what is it that you would desire for the members of URC more than anything else? And I said, well, that's easy. What I desire and what I labor for is that they would see more of Christ. That's my great desire for them. Because when you see more of Christ, you see more the beauty of Christ. And when you see more the beauty of Christ, you long more for the things of Christ. You want to be in heaven. Why? Because Christ is there. And that then bleeds down and affects everything when that is your outlook. You want righteousness. You want to avoid sin. Why? Because you want to look more like your Christ. You want to evangelize. Why? Because you want to speak more of Christ. 
You want to pray more. Why? Because you want to talk more to Christ. You want to open up your Bibles and read them and meditate upon them. Why? Because you want to think more upon Christ. You want to come and sit under the preached Word. Why? Because you want to more hear from Christ. You want to be among the people of God in church, worshiping week in and week out. You can't get enough of it. Why? Because it's the body of Christ. You just want more. When you have a heavenly mindset, when this is your outlook, that I'm a pilgrim and that is my destination eternity, it affects everything. Everything. And where it's not affecting something, I'm disobedient. It affects everything. What you desire shows where your heart is. I remember reading a theologian say once about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were almost all from the upper classes of Jewish society during the time of Jesus. They were also, you'll remember, the people that denied uh, the bodily resurrection. And you remember Jesus is combating them and speaking to them and will correct them about the resurrection. I remember reading this theologian years ago. I had to go back and look it up. And he said this about the Sadducees and their denial of the resurrection. He said this, it is often those most comfortable in this world who have the greatest difficulty believing in the next. Do you believe that this is not your home? Do you believe that you're a pilgrim? You're headed from here to there. What you bypass here to get there, what you refuse to set your hopes on here, invest in here, treasure here, will never be regretted there. Never. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, so if we improve our lives to any other purpose than a journey towards heaven, all our labor will be lost. If we spend our lives in the pursuit of temporal happiness, if we set our hearts on riches and seek happiness in them, if we seek to be happy in sensual pleasures, if we spend our lives to seek the credit and esteem of men, the goodwill and respect of others, if we set our hearts on our children and look to be happy in the enjoyment of them and seeing them well brought up and well settled, etc., all these things will be of little significance to us. Death will blow up all our hopes and expectations and will put an end to our enjoyment of these things. But you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's saying they died in faith. Why and how could they die in faith? Because what they were looking to were the promises to come. Finally, the pilgrim receives the promise. He says there, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
for He has prepared for them a city. So maybe two decades ago, I was reading through the Old Testament and it hit me for the very first time. I was, you read that refrain over and over. And it astounded me. It just, ah! just felt like it just hit me upside the head. And Where God says of Himself over and over, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But, I knew before he was a covenant-keeping God, but this is what hit me. That he identifies himself in relation to his people. When he speaks his own name, he does it in relation to his people. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's how he sees himself. Jesus will highlight this in the New Testament when He is battling the Sadducees over the bodily resurrection and He will catch them on this. And He'll say, Did, in essence, didn't you catch what God says? He says it in the present tense. He doesn't say it in the past tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what does that mean? And Jesus' answer, it means He is the God of the living, not of the dead. What is the implication? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob live. But they died in faith. They live. Why do they live? Because they received the promises that were given to them. They live. So much so that Hebrews writer says here, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. They live. And they're living before the face of that Christ that they long to see. And they are dwelling in that celestial city apart from all the pains and the sorrows and the miseries that this life had to offer. And they are enjoying perfect and utter peace and tranquility and joy in the presence of their Savior. They live. They are God's, and God is theirs. My favorite books of all time, besides the Bible, maybe my favorite book of all time, is Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I love John Bunyan, what he does with this. I love it because he captures this. He, oh, that brother understood as he's sitting in prison, he understood that this life is a pilgrimage. There's um, one of my things I'll do when I'm goofing around is uh, I will look up different pieces of art on Pilgrim's Progress, just kind of look it up on, online. And I was showing Leah some the other day. Uh, I love how different artists try and capture different aspects of the pilgrimage. and One of my favorite is by John Martin, who was a painter in the 19th century, and he has this, this painting of Christian and Hopeful, where Christian and Hopeful have made it through their pilgrimage, and now they're standing just the side of the river Bliss. And they're standing on this side, and above them on a rock are two angels. And these two angels are looking down at 
Christian and hopeful. And as they're looking down at them, the, the one angel is pointing, and he's pointing across the river Bliss. And you look across the river Bliss, and on the other side, just kind of in, in a kind of hazy fog, you have the celestial city all there surrounded by clouds. And then you have these, these silhouettes on the other side of the river Bliss where there are clearly people that no Christian and hopeful and are waiting for Christian and hopeful to make their way across the river of bliss and they're waiting there to usher them in. But this is what makes this one of my favorite paintings. As Christian and hopeful, all you can see is their back. They're just these little, little things. Helps to show how great heaven is. They're just these little things. And yet both of them have their arms outstretched like this. And you can just feel the joy. It's palpable. It just jumps off the painting. They've arrived. They're there. God is their God. He's promised. And they've arrived. And they shall be like Him because they shall see Him as He is, as John says. He keeps His promises to His people. And every Christian pilgriming through this world understands that. We live in light of that. And everything is shaped by that. See different ways, very practically, in the weeks ahead tonight. Mr. Hinckley will do it as we think about Living in light of eternity in our thoughts. Living in light of our eternity, friendships next Sunday morning, all kinds of things. Because everything has to be touched by it. Let's pray. Our Father, we exalt You this morning. Thankful that You are a God of promise. And that you are God who fulfills your promises to your people. May we be a people that live in light of eternity, that offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to you, giving you glory and praise with all that we are, and truly storing and storing our treasures in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.